Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to the January 2016 podcast. We're going to go into some workflow questions as well as some uh, camera-oriented questions that deal with workflow, and so I grouped them in this series. We got a great collection of Inner Circle members from all over the world that have asked these questions, so I think it's going to be a really fun podcast. Again, Happy New Year to everyone, and thank you so much for giving of yourself and sharing so much on the Facebook community and just in general. I love all of you, and uh, we could not do what we do without all of your support. All right, let's fire this baby up. First question. First off, I know you hear this a lot, but thank you immensely for creating the Inner Circle and all of your Hurl blog posts as well. You are very welcome. I've learned so much from you, and that information has saved my ass more than once. Like that. My question is this. I've talked to a few colorists, and they're always saying how important it is to have 10-bit color or higher. As a result, I've always shined away from using cameras such as the C100 or the C300 or the A7s, etc. I know you've been a fan of the C100 Mark II and have elevated above cameras with 10-bit capabilities like the GH4. Could you help clear up this realm a little bit more for me. I especially am curious about it regarding projects with a medium to heavy grade and situations where it comes to projects going sideways and sometimes having to save the footage in post. Is a C100 footage unsalvageable compared to 10-bit footage? Thanks, Eugene. Well, Eugene, this is a great question, and there's three or four questions in there, so let's just kind of get into it. The first thing I like to say is this 8-bit, 10-bit, 12-bit, 16-bit, all these bits, I personally really do not get crazed over all this because, again, it's the tool that you have access to. It's the tool that might tell the story better than a larger camera or a more problematic uh, fidgety camera or something that looks a little more like video just because it's got 10-bit information. I look at Active Valor, I stand back and I say to myself, is that an 8-bit camera, you don't see it on the screen. You see an immersive world that you've really never seen before with Navy SEALs attacking and hitting targets and exfilling and infilling and uh, doing all this amazing stuff. You're not saying, wow, that's an 8-bit camera. Did I do heavy grades on that 8-bit camera at 420. There's not a lot of information there. It wasn't the Mark III. It was the Mark II, and it was 30 frames per second. There was no 24 frames. I'm doing a whole pull-down on this movie as well. When you look at that film and say, wow, is that an 8-bit camera? You don't, because I immersed you in a world and took you on an emotional journey and did that not worrying about 10-bit or 12-bit or 8-bit. That tool specifically was the best tool 
for the job. Now, you look at like 13 Hours with Michael Bay, or you look at Black Hawk Down and a lot of these other movies. They have the ability to do a very large film with a very large budget and very large lighting and very large control. Well, we didn't have that. We were piggybacking on missions that the SEALs were on. We could only bring six or seven, sometimes 10 people on a mission. It had to be a very small camera system that the directors, the producers, the camera assistants, and I could all grab and shoot if we needed to. When you look at the act of valor, the the sequence when they come in with the boats, so they're coming in on their choppers, the big night stalkers that dump the boats in the river and they blast down the river. That was shot with only six people. Two directors, two camera assistants, myself, and a producer. That's it. That whole action sequence. Now, that's a lot different than 13 Hours, Black Hawk Down, any of these other Lone Survivor. This movie was that type of film. We had very limited access that the Navy gave us. We had all their amazing assets to go on and be able to experience and show you as an audience. But the limitations were that we had to come up with a camera system was very small and very intimate that could mount on them, that they could be helmet cam, that it could then go in a boat, that it could then go underwater. It had to be able to do all this with a small footprint and a very minimal crew. I didn't worry about 8-bit. I just worried about telling the most compelling story with the limitations that I was given as a cinematographer, which was we have to be small. The camera system has to be very small. We cannot be big. And you got to do it with very minimal lights and crew. So that's what I did. And the 5D Mark II at the time was the perfect capture device, whether it was 8-bit, 6-bit, 4-bit, 10-bit, whatever it was. So to your point, it's the story and it's whatever is going to engage an audience. If you feel more comfortable shooting on an 8-bit camera, like the C100 Mark II that you mentioned, let's just take that for example, that color space on the Mark II is far superior to a GH4 or an FS7 or any of those cameras. Their color space is tapping onto a 4K sensor and then down-resing it. So you're grabbing uh, much more information. And what I've seen, the difference between the Mark I and the Mark II is huge. These cameras, from a documentary standpoint, from shooting just really great visuals in a very easy way that grades excellently, these cameras deliver in spades. You mentioned the C300. I use that camera a lot to do small commercial work, and we used it a lot to shoot some of our educational content in the inner circle. It delivers a very good image that gives you good amount of latitude. I'm, again, not worried about the bits. I'm just worried about how I can tell that story and really immerse an audience and transport them to a different place. I think the end all of this is just not worry about the bits and just deliver and engage an audience. Now, the last part of your question is the medium to heavy grades. Well, I had some heavy ass grades on Active Valor and that was 8-bit. And it went through this very weird process. So let me kind of describe it to you. We did the movie and we color graded it with Stefan over at Company 3. And he did a very extreme look on the movie. We were very thankful because he's a huge Navy SEAL lover and he just did it as a massive favor to me. And I thanked him so dearly. Bandito Brothers produced the film and it was basically their baby through their investors and everything. And Relativity picked the movie up. And out of that, they wanted a different color grade. As well as all these new scenes where the edit moved around and the whole film changed after we had color corrected the whole film. They could not afford, Relativity bought the movie. They didn't want to uh, pay to go back and color grade all this footage from the raw files. So I had to work with Stefan's grade on a lot of the scenes. And some of the scenes were, I had raw files mixed with the already graded files. So we had to balance that whole thing. And I went to Mike Soa at Technicolor and they did the final grade 
on that movie, as well as the cinefilm process, which is me going in there, removing all of the artifacting and noise within the 5D Mark II. And then after I remove all that stuff, then layering in a grain texture to make it look more filmic. And that's what we did for the whole movie. So it went through this very weird process, a grade on a grade, an extreme grade, and then a grade to try and open up the extreme grade and tweak it and bend it and stretch it. That 8-bit camera and that file held up pretty damn well with all of these limitations. And again, it's all about being a good cinematographer, right? It's not the camera. It's the cinematographer. It's the man or the woman behind the camera. What is so important is the tool is a tool, but you are the power. Whatever intensifies your power as a cinematographer, you want to use to tell that story. The Mark II was the right tool to energize my creativity and to work with the budget and work with our limitations and what our access was and all that stuff. So that was the right tool. And I didn't worry about the bits. Even after all this, I never thought I would put it through this extreme color correction and all this stuff. I thought I'd just grade it once and I'd be okay with it. I think I thought it would handle it no problem. But I even graded on top of a grade, which stretches the image even more and it still held up. This is a great learning process. As a cinematographer, if you get the scene, the lighting in the pocket and balanced in a way that it is not so extreme that, you know, you don't have anything in the highlights and you're crushed all in the blacks, you're getting the image in a nice place to then be able to do a little contrast shift and add a little color or whatever you might want to do, then you can do almost anything with 8-bit. And that's a perfect example of Active Valor because as a cinematographer, I exposed it the way I like to expose my digital negatives. I went forward with that. I even stretched it in more extremes based on the grade on top of the grade and the film and the digital negative of 8-bit still held up. That's what it's all about. It's the cinematographer behind the tool and then picking that right tool to be able to tell your story whatever its quality would be. Great question, Eugene. I love these. All right, let's move on to the second question. From a production point of view, please correct me if I'm wrong. Second AC is traditionally considered a higher position than being a DIT. That's incorrect. The DIT is by far higher than a second AC. Their rates and obviously their responsibilities and everything are, are much higher on the pay scale than a second AC. However, the DIT today, in my opinion, has more responsibilities and tasks to execute compared to the second AC. That's completely correct. I'm not talking about a data wrangler, but a real DIT that, that does the following. Helps first and second ACs and camera operators to go through the advanced menu of the camera when they're not confident, which happens a ton with a lot of first and second ACs because no one really wants to learn all the different cameras. They want one person on set to learn all that stuff and they just want to pull their focus or grab filters. I feel that a lot of technicians tend to get lazy with technology. I guess it's because things are changing so fast and back in the day, it was just film, right? It was just some sprockets and a mag and you moved and loaded that camera and the sprockets moved through it and the cinematographer exposed the negative and you got it in focus and it was pretty simple. Each camera had a little different nuances, whether you use an Airy 3 or an Airy 4 or uh, a Panavision and all these had little changes to it and the menus were a little different, but that's it. Now it's like, okay, I'm using a Red Dragon and now I'm going to uh, an Aria Alexa and now I'm going to the Amira. No, now I got the Alexa Mini and now I'm going to slide the FS7 and oh, hey, how about the Sony A7S R234, whatever it is. It's a daunting task for an AC to learn all these cameras. 
I completely agree with that. I do have to say, and I want all of you to listen loud and clear on this. If you are paid and set up to do a movie and your camera is a a camera you've never used before, you better eat shit and sleep that technology before you get on the prep. This is what I ask of all of my ACs. They have to learn every menu, know every systematically way to go inside that camera and know exactly how to use it in every way, shape, and form. Down to putting frame lines to heat management to black shading, black balancing, whatever it is, they got to understand the idiosyncrasies of that device. And if we're using five and six different cameras, they got to learn all those as well. I just think that is not lazy. And that is something that has to happen. You don't need to systematically go through and try to keep up to date with every single camera that's out on the market because you would never be able to work because all you would do is go to classes. But when it comes down to the job and the tool that you're using on that job, you better know what's going on with that camera and how to use it effectively and not have to rely on a DIT to come in and save your ass because the DIT is going by the wayside. And let's go get to the bottom of this question. Setting high frame rates, raw modes, codecs, troubleshooting Teradek bolts, monitor menus, monitoring LUTs, gamma, etc. Exactly. They know a lot. Helps the sound guy syncing time code and adjust levels, prepare lookup tables or CDLs with the DP and load them into the cameras, install LUT boxes for color management for director's monitors, calibrate monitors, double check video clips for artifacts, transcode from raw to NLE codec, Finally, do you think that the DIT profession will disappear in a few years? The Panasonic Vericam workflow and its way of making multiple proxies, is that going to start to vaporize the DIT? Gianluca, Torino, Italy. Okay, Gianluca, I think the DIT is going to be on a case-by-case basis in regards to how each director of photography works. There's a lot of director of photographies where the DIT is their person. If they don't have them, they don't feel confident with what they're lighting and what they're shooting. And then there's some director photographies, like myself, that I like having a digital utility because the way I shoot, I need all hands on deck. And to have a person on my crew, like a DIT person that is back in a van or in a room or wherever he is, that all he is doing is managing and download footage and all that stuff, that is one person that is lost to me making company moves and me getting my day. What I do is something very unique, but is old school. I have taken the whole platform and flipped it on itself. And I did it on Need for Speed and everyone was like, hey, we're a Bandito Brothers. They're like, we're doing this? Okay. We flipped the whole world on its head and it's something that we've done for 120 years. And that is actually treat the mag, the digital mag as negative. And that negative is not processed on set. It's processed in a lab. So the way it works out is you shoot your mags and they come out of the camera and they're treated as digital negative and they're held till lunchtime. Those digital mags are now shuttled to the lab. What's the lab do? Oh, they're going to develop them just like they did for 120 years before film started to go uh, by the wayside. We're using the same lab that processes film. So the whole work etiquette and everything, the checks and balances are all in place. It's not something done on set through huge, massive lightning storms and rain and trying to move and all these different things. It's done in a very tranquil environment where they are processing and developing the digital negative, and then right then and there, they back it up on their RAID, as well as they back it up on LTO. They then vaporize the card, and then it comes back the next morning for us to shoot on. At lunch, we'd send mags, and at wrap, we would send mags. And by lunch, the next day, we'd have the mags that we had 
that we had sent at lunch the day before. All it requires is you having enough magazines, just like we would do with film. We have enough film stock to be able to keep this process going. Once I did it on Need for Speed, I was never going to go back because there's just absolutely no reason to do it. Need for Speed, we brought the lab to us. So we were in 10 different states and we didn't have a lab in all these different states. So we brought Next Lab, which was Photochem's mobile lab. And we set up two guys that processed and developed all of the footage during the night, during the day. They ran 24-hour shifts on Need for Speed in a hotel room. So it was the quote-unquote tranquil environment of a hotel room, not on set, not trying to move your cart from location to location, not trying to back up stuff. We just shot on mags, held them as digital negative, and then sent them to the lab to be processed. This is how I work. Now, other director photographies work much differently, and their DIT is incredibly important to them. And I have to say, a DIT on commercials has saved my ass several times as well. So it's not like I'm completely anti-DIT by any means because I feel like my camera assistants need to know all this stuff. They do not enter a job unless they know it. And if they don't, they don't get hired again. This is the business and it's ruthless and you have to be at the top of your game. And a lot of responsibility is put on you as a director of photography to deliver. So your crew has to be held to the same high standards that you are. And you as a leader have to hold them to the high standards and excellence as well. This is very important learning here for you all to take in because as you get more and more experienced, and move up the ladder of uh, bigger and bigger jobs as a cinematographer, you're going to have to really understand that you have to hold your crew accountable and they have to deliver excellence, just like you're being asked to do as well. Well, I hope I answered that question, Gianluca. I want to thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. I own a Red One and a Single Cook a Mini S4 32 millimeter. And for years, I've struggled to accept the same camera I shoot on looks like video footage when David Fincher can make it look like film. It's been very frustrating. After watching your Power of Bounce lighting tutorials, I was able to make my footage look like a real movie. It was almost enough to make me cry. I was that happy. LOL. No, in all seriousness, I want to thank you for showing me a lighting setup that cost me less than $2,000 to get a multi-million dollar look. Well, you're very welcome. And thank you for your support and your wonderful words as well. You know what? Before I answer this question, I want to go to that first part because what this shows is lighting is the power. You know, I've heard a lot of you on the inner circle. Some people have commented on, wow, this is a uh, lighting intensive. It's very, a lot of lighting tutorials and everything. Well, I'm just going to be very honest with you. Your camera is one thing. Lighting is everything. And this is a perfect example. Just by using the right type of of quality of light, he was able to take his stuff that looked very video and make it look filmic. That's done with light. I can take the cheesiest cameras, an iPhone, whatever it is, and light it with DIY clamp lights and, and wacky under cabinet tubes and make it look cinematic. That's the art of the cinematographer. That's understanding that no matter what the DIY thing, no matter what the light is, you're able to place it in the right place and quantitize the light exactly to make it look cinematic. As much as everyone harps on the lighting tutorials, I'm just setting you all up for success because when it's all said and done, they're going to be asking you, how long is it to light your scene? And how soon are we going to get these actors through the mix? And when can we move on? And that's all based on lighting and how quickly you can do it and how easily you can do it. And from a leadership standpoint, how you can unite 
unite your crew to be able to deliver the impact and the lighting for your story. So I've said my piece about our lighting tutorials. Now on to his question. How vital is color grading to cement the film look on footage that's already been shot? I've seen indie trailers that look like video, yet six months later, their new trailer using the same footage look like film. Not only does this intrigue me, it bends my mind. Also, this is my first attempt using your bounce tutorials, and I'm so thankful that it looks like a real movie. Not perfect, but so happy. Thank you so much for that question. Color grading is a big deal. Let me take the C500, for example, on Fathers and Daughters, which is going to be released in April in the United States. That movie I shot on the C500, which is you know somewhat of a video-looking camera, if not handled correctly. I took that image, and I didn't shoot it at 4K. On that movie, I wasn't able to do the Cinefilm process. They were not going to pay for it. When I did Need for Speed, I shot 4K, but I knew I had the Cinefilm to go in there, take the sharpening out, and kind of layer in the grain texture. So it would knock that kind of uh, video look out of the C500. But with Fathers and Daughters, I knew we couldn't afford the Cinefilm process, so I needed to deliver it in camera. So I went down to 2K resolution instead of 4K, which cut it at its knees, which was great. That enabled me to blow out windows a lot nicer because the detail wasn't there in 4K where the camera clips very easily. That's the one bad thing about the C500 is its overexposure is like a cliff. It doesn't roll off like an Alexa or a Dragon. It, uh, it just clips. With that, I thought, okay, I'm going to do 2K and then I'm going to just do the Canon log file and shoot it and light it on a Rec. 709 lookup table. Not something that came out of the camera, their Rec. 709 LUT, which is way too extreme. It's one that I put on my Flanders scientific monitor, and I had a lot more detail by going down this road, and what I found is when the image came up, it was a little flat and lacked contrast and lacked color jack. Not a lot. I mean, that's the cool thing about Canon is it bakes in that color. Where the Alexa, you got to crank the saturation knob to 11. With the Canon, you really don't. At Light Iron in New York, uh, the shot would come up on the C500. We would lower the blacks, okay? So the blacks would go so that kind of logish image where you're seeing the the blacks are kind of gray. I would bring them to true black. I would take the contrast and just stretch the whites a little. And usually the color would fall in very nicely. Maybe sometimes the C500 becomes a little more yellow with warm lights, tungsten lights. So you need to dial that yellow out at a little red, orange. So it becomes nice and golden. And that's all we really did. Well, if you had seen that just as a log file with just a Rec. 709 on it, then it would look video-esque. But going in there and doing the right manipulations of just stretching the image just a little bit and crushing the blacks down, and that added the cinematic quality. Color grading is a very important step. It is, as from a director of photography standpoint, in this day and age, you have the on-set lighting that's in production, and you have the post-production lighting that is done in color grading. And I do post-production lighting all the time. Okay, so what's post-production lighting? Post-production lighting is when you don't have time to take down that white wall or that hot spot or that thing that bugged you or you didn't have time to really light his face enough. Like you could, you didn't have time to whip that fill in. This is called post-production lighting. Where the wall is too hot, I didn't have time to set a flag to take it down. We were go, go, go. We're behind schedule. Ah! I then went into in the color grading process, put a power window on that wall and took it down. So I'm now lighting in post. Many times you light things moody and when we get into the edit and we see where it's headed, all of a sudden the director says, I really want to see her face. Or you didn't have time to add that fill that he had asked you to do or he or she had asked you to do on the day and you were like scrambled and we needed to go and and uh, so you didn't have time to add the fill, you can go and put a power window on the face and bring up 
the emotion. These are things that are lighting in post. And this is the stuff that makes it much more cinematic when you do it that way if you don't have time on the day. And I do a wonderful balance. I know that I light my scene and I try to control the light as best possible and get the fill levels exactly where the emotion needs to be to tell that story. But a lot of times you don't have that time to do that. And you have to say, you know what? I am going to fix it in post. I do it almost on every image. And the one thing that I do on every image is vignette an image. What I want to do is direct the audience to exactly where to look. So if the person is in the center of the frame or off to the left, I will vignette all the corners of the frame to take it down just ever so slightly. And I am talking a third of a stop sometimes that then just makes that face or what we want the audience to see a little brighter than all the surrounding edges. And it just directs the audience to where you as a cinematographer and a director want them to look. So this is again, lighting and post. Very important. These are just a couple tips and little pearls of wisdoms of what I use and how the color grading process can take your image and make it much more cinematic. Next question. Can you also define the profession of a location manager? I have a general idea, but they usually operate a little bit behind the scenes, generally like ninja. And I was just curious to know more in details of what they do exactly and how they can be found. You can go into LA411 and find a lot of location managers in that book. A location manager can make or break your film. It's really funny because you can kind of undulate through my films as a director of photography, and I can always see when we had a really good location manager and a really bad one. The bad ones are not so much that you don't get the locations that you want. You know, the director and you and the production designer will just continue to beat on this location manager till we get the right location for the story. The location manager's job, not only finding great locations, is the management and what you gain access to, and what they can kind of grease the skids to get us light placement and places that's very fragile or we shouldn't be there or it's a historical area. These are the things where the location manager can work his or her magic. Let's take Need for Speed, for example, and because this was brought to my attention just a couple days ago because I have a job, a commercial that I'm going to do in Moab, and the director and producer asked me if I'd ever worked there before, and I said yes, and they said, well, who have you had as your location manager? See, right off the bat, that's the first thing that they're asking. The reason being is they can make or break the film. I gave them Patrick's name and number and email because this guy, he was able to get the most amazing stuff. I mean, I just could not believe it. We got access to roads and locations that I could never imagine. I mean, we were driving this Mustang. I mean, people, if you saw uh, Inner Circle members, if you saw the movie, I mean, that Moab sequence, they are up at four, 5,000 feet elevation, driving off Dead Horse Point that's right above the Colorado River. Camera positions in BLM land, which is very restricted, especially within Moab and all the different areas and vegetation where you're not supposed to go because of your imprint and, and your footprint on creating vegetation and changing the eco space. He was able to get us in places that no one had ever gotten us. And this is the true testament of a great location manager. When we went to Detroit and we were driving around and we were just desperately trying to find this place for the Mustang to do the grasshopper stunt. We were hooking around downtown Detroit and I looked over my shoulder and I go, what if it went down into that, like it's going on the freeway and it hits that green berm and flies over four lanes of traffic and lands in that church parking lot. And everyone was like, that is it. That is perfect. Going 90 miles an hour and landing in a church parking lot that has a lot of trees in it. Well, we said we had to cut down seven or eight of the trees. 
these trees had just been planted and they had been gifted to the church and it was this whole scenario. So he brought in a crew that dug up the trees that transplanted them over, moved them over. We were able to do our stunt and then we went back and planted them all over again, the same exact tree. So it didn't upset the apple cart of, of what family had donated it and all this stuff. This is so important for a location manager. And the production designer is the main person that gets the location manager all fired up and, and ready to roll out. On Fathers and Daughters, we had an amazing location manager as well in Pittsburgh. Dan Clancy, the production designer, and Gabriel Muccino, the director. I walked into that movie with only three weeks of prep. And that is always a scary, scary way. I mean, most movies you get at least five to six weeks. And this one only having three weeks and in a city that I've never worked before with a crew that I've never worked with before. You know, I was not setting myself up for success, but this was what the budget allowed. So I only had three weeks. When I got there, the first day, Gabrielli and Dan Clancy took me around to these locations and I was in awe. I mean, they had just found locations that lit themselves. And I knew that with this practical style of lighting that I was going for and the naturalistic kind of feel with a heightened reality that I was kind of going through what the eight-year-old girl's world would feel like in her mind, and that's what fathers and daughters looks like. I knew that that was going to be so easy for me because the location manager was looking for places that I would be able to have lighting access and for the crew to be able to park their trucks close so we could be able to make our day and get access to areas that I that we never have, would have access to. And all these things that are so important in delivering your vision as a cinematographer, the location manager is huge. It's the one person, along with the production designer, that are your best part of your team uh, in regards to delivering your vision because the production designer can build windows and access points and and uh, and sets in a way that they light themselves and give you much more depth than you could ever imagine. And the location manager at the same time can get you locations that light themselves, that are easy to move into, that give your, your trucks and your crew access to be able to light very quickly. So these two people are very important in delivering your vision. The minute I get my first day of prep, I walk down and I do two things. I walk into the production designer's office and I look at his or her scrap. And a lot of it is scrap of already locations that he is really feeling locked into. The idea of what he is looking for the film to look and feel like, as well as the set deck that's already started to get props and furniture and everything. So you can start to see that. You get the whole visual package in there because He's, he or she's been on for a month or two months before you ever get there. That's the first thing you do to get up to speed. The next thing you do is you go to the location manager and you just look at all his locations, like what locations are rising to the top. And I just start to look at them in these folders or I ask him to send them to me via email in a Dropbox and I can just start to click through those. Even before seeing a location, I'm starting to get my grounding and I'm starting to see what the director, because the director has already been in this location manager's head for months before I even have been hired. These are the kind of things that you gotta think about that's going to make you much more efficient as a director of photography. My wife always says this because after that day, the first day of my prep, I come back and I'm like, oh my God, Jesus, I do the same thing every single time. Oh my God, I can't, Jesus, there's this and there's that and I don't know this crew and not at all these things. And she goes, Shane, you do this every single time. Just take one day at a time and just notch away at this thing. And it's so true. So systematically, just take it one day at a time. You know you're then going to go see the location. You'll then figure out how you're going to light it. And remember, you're not lighting all the locations in one day. You're only lighting one, two, or three, whatever your schedule is. So you just take it one day at a time and just rip them off the calendar, basically. Having your production designer and your location manager in your back pocket to exactly what your vision 
vision is. You need to really communicate that vision to them of your lighting style and what requirements you're going to have. Like I'm a big batten guy. I hang those things everywhere. So I needed him or her to understand that when we were going into a location, it could not be so ridiculously where we couldn't touch it because I was going to be hanging a lot of battens on the whole perimeter of the room. So we had to select locations and he knew in his mind, he just wasn't going to show us anything if we couldn't do those things. And that really was this wonderful relationship that you have with the location manager to kind of help you deliver your vision. Next question. Now I'm going to get into these weird kind of camera questions that have a little workflow uh, aspect to them as well. Hey Shane, I'm a film production student from London. I'm graduating this year and I'm gearing up for my final major film project. I wanted to know what happens during the camera test. Is it just testing if the equipment works? I would have thought that the rental house does that before they rent out their equipment or is there more to it? I also wanted to know, as I live in UK, do you plan on doing any workshop here in London. It would be awesome to see you in action. Thank you, Joam Joseph. All right, Joam. Well, I would love to come to London and I would love to do some master classes and some of my IE workshop tours over there. I'm actually doing a film in Prague and Cannes and Nice and Paris and Macau this year. So I will be over there in March all the way to September. And we'll see after the project is done if we can loop a, a tour into London. I don't know. I think my wife, Lydia, would stab me with a stake. So I don't know about that. But hell, I'll put it on the block right now. Getting back to your question, camera tests. So there's two type of camera testing, let's say. They're the camera tests that you see on the blog and on the inner circle where I'm systematically testing these cameras for their latitude, for their under and over exposure, for how they handle backlight and highlights, for how they handle their fill ratios, all the different tests that we do. IR pollution, noise, IS. So finding that sweet spot in the camera, all these things are camera tests to really understand what your digital emulsion is all about. Because every camera is different. Every camera has a different digital emulsion. And when I call it digital emulsion, it's like how I exposed film. You cannot expose a C500 like you would expose a Red Dragon, or you can't expose a Red Dragon like you would expose an Area Alexa. That's a different emulsion. If all of them were the same sensor, then where's the wonder and mystery in that? I love the fact that all these different cameras have a different look and feel. I mean, some of them I don't like, but of course, a lot of them I do. And they help tell your story by using the different emulsions. These different digital emulsions is what the camera tests that I perform on the Inner Circle and the blog are about. Now, there's also camera testing that's done at the prep. So let's take Badlands for an example. Badlands had two weeks of prep. So I had my team with 12 different cameras going into the rental house and testing all the cameras and making sure they had the latest firmware because you can't just, you can't trust a rental house. Not that rental houses don't do their job, but you cannot leave anything to chance. And that's what I drive down on my first, my whole camera team is nothing is left to chance. Every lens is inspected, every filter is analyzed, every camera is gone through every single menu. Because you got to understand, they like take the Dragon, for example. Red issues a new firmware every other day sometimes. Well, depending on how busy a rental house is or what their etiquette and workflow is, they might not have the most current firmware on the camera. You need to go through and make sure it does. You need to test the lenses to make sure you don't have a back focus issue in the camera or that the lens has issues. All these things are not leaving anything to chance. And this is what the camera prep is also a camera test, but more the inner workings of the camera, the menus, the firmware, the lenses, you're testing those to make sure they're all functioning at their highest ability. What my camera tests on the blog and the inner circle are there to really find what this camera can do, what it can't do, and really finding the sweet spot and what the digital emulsion looks and feels like. That's it in a nutshell. 
This is the last question. Hi, Shane. Hope you guys at Hurlbut Visuals are doing well. We are. Thank you so much. I remember in the July podcast, you mentioned that when it came to the Canon Cinema Primes and the Zeiss CP2s, that they're just the same glass as the photo lenses, just with the cinema housing gears on the barrel, declicked aperture, etc. It's my understanding in your podcast that you said that there's no difference between these two sets of cinema lenses versus the still lenses, in-camera shooting on DSLRs. My question is, is when you get into better cinema cameras like the Reds or the Black Magics, the Aries, that having more dynamic range and better color space, is there a noticeable difference in the CP2s or the Canon Cinema Primes and the still lenses that isn't noticeable in the DSLRs? Keep up the great work and thanks for all your encouragement you give us, Jacob Hamill. The Hamill Bros Studio. How you doing, Hamill Brothers? Your first part of the question is cinema lenses versus still lenses. Is there a, a difference? Well, the biggest difference is not the glass. It's the operating of the lens. So if you take a still lens, they're mainly designed for autofocus. So five feet to infinity is an eighth of an inch. Well, that's not good for focus pullers because five feet to eight feet is a pull that happens a lot. And in that range of eight feet away is a perfect distance for like a 75 mil or an 85 mil. So you think about it, you're moving back and forth that knob in an area that's only an eighth of an inch. Well, that is very difficult. And Active Valor is a perfect example of that. When we had to go to the L-Series Primes or the Zeiss ZEs or ZFs, it was very difficult for focus. So we had to stay as much as we could on the Panavision Primo Primes that were marked for cinema glass. So our focus pullers had a chance. On the still lenses, they just did not have a chance because they're just the markings were so close. So that's the true difference with the cinema versus the still glass from a making movie commercial perspective. It's difficult to do it on the still piece of glass. The res resolution is going to be the same and all the qualities of the glass are the same, but the ergonomics and how you can make a movie or a commercial or a documentary is going to be far easier on a cinema piece of glass than it is on a still piece of glass. To your second part of the question, and this folds in the workflow a little bit just so I can round this all out so it doesn't feel like I just tossed in a couple camera questions, is the more dynamic range and better color space, is that noticeable? You're always testing these lenses, and I test a lot. I test far more than most director of photographies do because of the inner circle and the blog. But the one thing that I really haven't done side by side until I did it on a commercial uh, was like a CP2 compared to a Cook S4. And I've always compared the Cook S4 to the Leica, Summicron, or Summilux, and uh, Ultra Primes. I mean, these are all lenses that are twenty or thirty thousand dollars a piece, not two to five thousand dollars a piece. I really want to do that test so everyone can see. But I saw it on this Toyota commercial. I was doing a Toyota spot down downtown LA and we had a lot of cameras going and the production could only pay for one set of Cook lenses. And we had a lot of multiple hard mounts inside the car. We had two cameras lensing our stunt driver as well as two on the outside. And a lot of those required the same millimeter of glass because when you're in a car, you're restricted right? You can't blow out a wheel well or rip off a door. I mean, you can, but it's costly. They call this the buck when you rip all this stuff off and, and still be able to drive it. But we didn't want that. We wanted to be immersed in this action. We wanted to do it very need for speed, active valor style, where we position these cameras in very unique places using very small cameras and being able to have all different types of lenses on them. Well, the Cook's were already deployed in all the different places and uh, I needed 25 or a 21 mil and I needed to use my Zeiss CP2s. I had these on Flander monitors in the back seat. I had 
so funny. I'd, I'd mounted like uh, the director and I, and I had my team mount two Flanders with a picture in picture display so we could display four different cameras while this guy just drove like a crazy man through downtown LA. And we were able to watch it all on the Flanders Scientific in the back seat. And we were hidden from view on all these four cameras. And what I could see immediately is resolution. And that resolution on the CP2 was like a piece of plastic glass compared to the Cook S4. So when everyone talks about all these lenses and I see it on the Inner Circle Facebook page and I everyone's talking about SLR magic and all these different lenses that are the Cook and all these people are not going to ride on their high horses and that uh, there's no difference between a Cook S4 and a uh, SLR magic. And I just want to tell you this from my personal experience of over 25 years that there is. And there's a reason that they're $25,000. It's not because they're in the film business and they're overpaid professionals that make the glass. It just costs that money to get great glass and great optics and good design and great resolution and wonderful flaring and good coating. All these things cost money. When you look into a piece of glass, that CP2 did not resolve because I had a 27 Cook next to the 21 CP2. And you could immediately see that the CP2 was not seeing into the shadow like the Cook was. It was not holding the highlights out the window. Same camera. Okay, two C500 side by side. The Cook was seeing all the detail out the window and the CP2 was not. The CP2 is not seeing any detail in the blacks where the Cook was. Okay, now there, of course there's detail, but it's how it falls off, how it rolls in, how it transitions into the black and how it transitions into the highlight, which is the difference between a $4,000 piece of glass and a $22,000 piece of glass. And that's what makes it look cinematic as well. And it gives you the ability when you use these higher end lenses on these, let's say, prosumer cameras, you are getting much more bang for your buck. And this is the big thing that you are asking in this question and why it's so relevant with this workflow is that the first question we asked was, who cares about 8-bit, 10-bit, 12-bit, 6-bit, whatever, right? Well, again, the piece of glass can help you take an 8-bit image and make it look like a 10-bit image. A piece of glass can give you all the nuances and the grading and the detail. So when you do do an extreme grade, you're able to make that 8-bit image not fall apart because the piece of glass that's on your camera is doing the work for you. There you have it. This wraps up the January 2016 podcast. And once again, I'm going to wish you all a happy and prosperous new year, as well as do not forget to submit questions to our podcast. And now Lydia, my beautiful wife and CEO of Hurlbut Visuals, is also going to be answering questions next month. So the February podcast, I'm taking a month off and I'm giving it to Lydia to hunker down and answer all your questions about how she deals with me as a cinematographer. <laughs> I'm hoping that you send her a ton of questions about life and about balancing family, how building an entrepreneurship of building this business and, and all her wisdom. She's an incredibly intelligent woman and a powerhouse and helps me so much in everything that I do. And I could never be the artist that I am without her. She has basically given me the ability to create in ways that I never knew possible because of all of her love, caring, guidance, and wisdom that she evokes. This woman, is she's incredible. She just immerses compassion and uh, creativity and wisdom in ways that is far beyond her age. I hope we get a ton of questions for her in February because she has so much to share and so much to give. All right. Thank you so much and have a wonderful day. 
What helps you become a better filmmaker? Knowledge, practice, consistency. That's exactly what happens in our loving film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. If you want your questions answered, join us at shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And thanks for joining us for another episode of the Filmmakers Academy podcast. Take advantage of monthly virtual group mentorships, networking events, and new content released weekly by becoming a member today. Join today and get $20 off your first month by using the promo code FAPOD20. That is F-A-P-O-D-20. And join the number one resource for cinematographers, film crews, and do-it-all filmmakers.